Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone and welcome back to the history of england episode 319 would you believe dearth and discord i need to start with a groveling apology about the much vaunted sponsored thames walk the legs have not shrunk yet despite the application of the kind of stockings my granny used to wear as soon as i can as soon as i can but meanwhile you have donated 7300 quid you lovely people which is just gobsmacking Thank you so much. No more, though, please. It's embarrassing until I get walking again, but you are very, very generous. Now then, a few episodes ago, I spoke briefly, and yet authoritatively, I thought, even sensitively, about the last 10 to 13 years of Elizabeth's reign, the golden age thing. You know the thing, dispatching our enemies to the boundary for successive sixes, a nation newly found and self-confident, socially stable and at one with itself setting out to explore the world and create a corpus of drama of sufficient size to be able to torture young people for infinite future generations. I hesitate to say cry Harry and all that because I've been doing that a lot recently. But what the heck? Cry Harry, gentle listeners, and if you will, St George, and just to be properly inclusive, the dragon, which does tend to get left out a lot. Every one of the greats needs a great enemy after all. This week then, we're going to ask, what was the golden age like for you? A frankly dishonest device to allow me to squeeze some social content into the food processor of history in the attempt to spice up the sausage of political history. Just to frame this, let me start with the facts of life, because that will 
pretty quickly give you a good idea of why this golden age thingy needs some pushing, prodding and general jostling around with the elbows. We have spoken before of the basic economic background to the Tudor century. You may recall this was about September 2019 when I did a series of seven social episodes which got rather panned by one reviewer, I must say. Not that I ever read reviews, darlings. Well, not more than ten times each, anyway. Although we talked about the Northwest European marriage pattern too, and I remember one of you getting very excited. Thank you for that. Well, I'm not going to rely on your perfect memory of all of that, and we'll just give you a few highlights. Then we can talk how that played out in the 1590s, or the Golden Age, as it's called. So, the story of the Tudor Age, from around something like mm, 1550, is one of a rising population, and along with it, rising inflation. Just as a by-the-way, I think there are a few historians who think that population growth has far more effect on society and daily life than do any number of irascible, overweight ex-sportsmen, much given to the chopping off of heads. And it's a fair argument. Anyway, by the 1590s, the steady population growth was having a real impact on Tudor England. It was on average about 1% a year, that growth, which we think of as, as rather pashaw-worthy, but it was dramatic for England. Remember that since the Black Death, population increase has been basically zip, along with relatively high death rates. The Golden Age of Bacteria, as it's been called. Anyway, population numbers are tricky and bothersome, but let's say, in 1524, the population was in the order of 2.3 million people, which had risen to 4.15 million in 1603, and would rise further to 5.6 million in 1650. So look, that's a big increase. That's a lot more people to feed. Price inflation did not help, because it depressed the real value of wages, this wasn't bad for everyone. If you had land, then the 16th century was something of a wheeze because labour was relatively cheap, but meanwhile the prices for produce rose as more people chased the same levels of production and even relatively small landholders, husbandmen and yeomen, profited from this too, not just the gentry and the magnate types. But if you are a landless labourer and enclosure and the end of serfdom, had rendered up many more of those, your life was much, much more precarious and became ever more precarious as time went by, until maybe around the 1630s when the population growth seems to come to an end. It's not entirely clear what percentage of the population fell into the landless labourer category, and of course it would vary according to region and type of agriculture. But a couple of studies by Keith Wrightson suggested that maybe 25-30% to 30 of a village population were wage labourers. In addition, a study in Ipswich put the figure of 13% of the population living in what they described as poverty, and the rest, of course, living in tractors. Pressures were particularly acute, of course, when times were hard, and in the 1590s, times were hard. You might be able to ride out the odd year of bad harvest, but woe betide you if more than one bus came along at the same time. In 1594 and 1595, that's exactly what happened. Both the harvests were bad. 
But then, in 1596 and 1597, they were disastrous, and it took until the new century for a run of good harvests to return. Strange as it seems, there was a run of crazy dreams, and a man who could have interpreted could have gone far, but there was no such man this time. Instead, high food prices, low wages, lots of competition for work, a dearth of food. Pretty disastrous conditions, especially for your common or garden labourer. And this has an impact on mortality. People die as a result of this dearth. They don't just go about saying, I feel a little bit peckish, would you mind passing me a pasty, please? There were greatly increased burials in many parishes. Though there isn't a repeat of the great famines of the past, I should say, and indeed there was no mass starvation as apparently occurred in France at this time. The English economy was showing signs of greater flexibility with improved mechanisms for poor relief. But there was more. This was a time of war, and that had an impact too. Recruitment was very disruptive. The period 1591 to 1602 saw 6,000 men recruited in Kent alone, for example, from a population of 130,000. There was further pain in Kent because troops were billeted there on their way to the continent, and billeting was a usually very painful experience for ordinary people. And then there was the return of demobilised or injured soldiers, adding to the vagrancy problem, and periods when trained bands were called out. Armies were generally trouble in the early modern world. They spread disease, billeting was a nightmare, and they were notoriously light-fingered. They also had a tendency to mutiny. Mutinies were a common plague in Chester and Bristol, where troops disembarked for war in Ireland. On top of this, there were regular parliamentary subsidies. Now, obviously, Elizabeth was notoriously thrifty and used the joint stock approach to financing naval warfare. But nonetheless, war ain't cheap. It's calculated that the Armada cost 161000 and that 575,000 was spent on naval warfare between 1585 and 1603. The war in the Low Countries and France cost 1.9 million quid, and slightly more, almost 2 million quid, was spent on the pesky Irish in the Nine Years' War. The impact of this was many and various. The profile of poverty was not necessarily a binary thing. People fell into poverty for specific periods very often. It might be a factor of the life cycle. Older people were more likely to fall into poverty, for example. It might be due to dearth and harvest failure, so restricted for particular periods. Or it might be seasonal, outside of harvest time, for example, when there was less work around. There is also a concept of something called nuclear hardship, the idea that in societies where small nuclear families were the rule, the elderly or those falling on hard times were more vulnerable. But I think the conclusion is that complex families anyway did not save for times of trouble and therefore were no better at covering crises. Plus, it's also important to remember any kind of preventable death was seen by communities as a catastrophic failure. Here's an example of that. In the parish registers of Weddensbury in Staffordshire, dated the 22nd of November 1674, was this entry. John Russell, buried, being famished for want of food. Josiah Freeman, being overseer. 
John Russell was buried with the solemnity of many tears. The register entry reflects the importance of the death felt by the community by identifying for posterity the person responsible for his death, the parish overseer for the poor, Josiah Freeman, who should have provided the support John needed. Death wasn't any more easily accepted in early modern England than it is now. Either way, poverty was not as simple as just not having enough work or not being able to make ends meet. A survey of paupers in Lancashire, for example, showed that the factors that made a difference, 43% were old, 50% sick, 40% were single, 43% mentioned children, who are a drain, it must be said. Only 4% told of unemployment and economic crises. However, of course, at times of crisis like the 1590s, dearth became a much more important factor and the poor often took action into their own hands, with a popular route being the Green Riot. Now, riot is also not as straightforward as it might sound. The Elizabethan records of the Star Chamber show 105 examples of riot in her reign. Many were very cleverly constructed. They had fewer than 30 people, dispersing in an hour to avoid the charge of common-law riot. Riot was being used to remind their rulers of their responsibility over things like rights of common and so on. But in the 1590s, the profile changed, and riot became much more urgent. In 1595, for example, there were 12 in London in June alone. There were food riots in multiple counties. In 1596, there was a rising that acquired the rather grand name of the Oxfordshire Rebellion, but maybe more because of the heavy-handed and frankly vicious intervention of the famed jurist Edward Cook, who was granted power to torture and declared the riot as treason, which meant that Robert Burton and Richard Bradshaw were hanged, drawn and quartered when they would never normally have been treated in such a way. Edward Cook, as members of the History of England will know, was a very famous jurist, but also a notable arse, whose wife said of him on his death, His like shall never be seen again. Thanks be to God. Now, one of the bases for the Golden Age argument is that after 1569, Elizabeth faced no major rebellions at all, and that the Tudor realm was a model of social stability, where people knew and accepted their role in the Commonwealth, and where their rulers were filled with a strong paternalistic tradition of support, and received in return deference and obedience from the lower orders. Well, actually, there probably is some truth in there, but there is also some surviving comment that suggests that people of Elizabethan England were less content with the social order than tradition would have us believe. In Essex, a weaver told the crowd at court that it would never be better until men did rise and thereby seek an amendment and wished in his heart a hundred men would rise and he would be their captain to cut the throats of the rich churls and the rich cornmongers. A labourer in 1598 swore in court that he hoped to see such war in this realm to afflict the rich men of this country, to requite their hardness of heart towards the poor. 
The Queen herself even was not immune. One soldier declared that, Captain Drake and his soldiers, when they have gone forth into the prince's service, do rob and spoil the King of Spain his goods, which is the right King of England. In return, England's elites use some language which is markedly short of the ideal for a supportive, respectful and paternalistic father of the poor. They saw before them a wave of violence, and in particular they saw the old order of things being overturned by vagrancy. There seemed to be people all over the place when they should have been in their own parish, and their existence carried with it a threat of anarchy and social disorder, or the seeds of peril and tumult, in the words of Francis Bacon. The laws of sedition and treason were frankly blood-curdling. As one historian, Joel Samahar, put it, The law of sedition in Elizabethan England provided that anyone who criticised the government, reported others' criticisms, or even speculated about when the government would change or when the Queen would die, was subject to crushing fines, cruel corporal punishment, and even death itself. Contemporary William Lambard wrote of infinite swarms of evil that in latter years, more than in former ages, have invaded the realm and overrun it. And the JP, Edward Hext, wrote that behind the rapines and thefts which multiplied daily lay a body of wicked and desperate persons Idle ne'er-do-wells, who, being put to any hard labour, will grieve them above measure, so they would rather hazard their lives than work. In Elizabethan England, the gap between crime and sin was almost non-existent, and rulers panicked that small sins would prove to be a gateway drug to greater crime. Sir John Smith wrote to Burley to urge harsh and decisive repression to head off rebellion. For commonly, the beginning are very small and therefore lightly regarded, but once begun, they suddenly grow great and then turn all to fire and blood. Essentially, many of the social elite were convinced that what they were facing here was social anarchy and that action was needed now. Much of this worry was exacerbated by what seemed to be a crime wave. Understanding the extent of crime and how it changes is tricky, partly due to the survival of records, but also because there is a basic and possibly unanswerable question. Did a rise in indictments mean a rise in crime, or a panic about crime and therefore a rush to prosecute? But the conclusion seems to be, by most historians, that crime did indeed rise. What seems to have happened was a dramatic rise in felony crime starting around 1580 and remaining high then until around 1640 when they fell significantly and stayed low. We might relate this back to a question. Why was it that in a century noted for its popular rebellion that Elizabeth's reign saw no major rebellions after the Northern Rebellion of 1569 and that it must be said that that was a bit of a non-starter anyway. So, so far under the Tudors, we'd seen the Cornish come to London in an ugly mood in 1497, the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, the various rebellions in the commotion time of 1549. I have, may have missed some. And yet Elizabeth 
got away with it. And that seems even more remarkable given the litany of small-scale riots that we've heard about and the troubles of the 1590s. The number one explanation probably lies in the economic changes of the 16th century that we've just described. So although the poor got poorer, the rich getting richer made a very significant difference to the dynamic of riot and rebellion. If you look at all those Tudor rebellions, they all have one thing in common. They have leaders from higher up the social scale leading the ordinary villagers. Even the mousehold commotion time in Norwich had Robert Kett, a substantial yeoman. Now with their more prosperous lifestyle, the yeomanry began to look not to their leadership of the village and their fellow peasants, but to aspire to be part of the middling sort, or indeed gentlemen or gentry even. One symptom of this is what W.G. Hoskins called the Great Rebuilding from the 1570s to the 1640s, yeomen and husbandmen in the country, alongside merchants and tradesmen in the towns, upgrading their houses, building brick fireplaces, extending and dividing up their medieval hall buildings to create privacy. So although in the Oxford Rebellion there's plenty of evidence of widespread discontent exacerbated by a high level of enclosure and therefore an extensive population of wage labourers, yet the rebellion fails to take off. It seems that villagers also knew they no longer had a great chance of success and that so they sought to play the system instead of causing serious mayhem, as mentioned. There's evidence they carefully get to riot below 30 people and split up after an hour so as not to fall foul of the law. It's a bit like planning a wedding in a time of Covid restrictions. Others point to the international situation and the ability of Elizabeth herself to present a figure of unity and project a sympathetic image through the theatre of politics and constructed images, all of which Elizabeth, of course, was a past master in. And indeed, to propaganda such as the record of her coronation or Burley's faintly scurrilous and provocative pamphlets. Where rebellion did occur, such as the Northern Rebellion, Elizabeth's handling of the crisis was consummate. She did indeed use brutality in executing many ordinary folks, but she dealt very intelligently with the social elite below the magnate rebel level, fining them, holding them in debt, but not executing or ruining them. And finally, the Elizabethan state was responsive, despite Edward Cook's hideous overreaction to the Oxfordshire Rebellion, Parliament then passed an act against the conversion of tillage to pasture, as ineffective as all other anti-enclosure acts as it happens, but they can claim to have listened and to have acted. And finally, Elizabeth was very conscious of the burden of taxation and consistently refused to reform the assessment system. The result was an increasingly sclerotic system with falling returns, but of course it lightened the burden on people even in the nasty 90s. She thereby left a massive problem for her successors, which would only, rather ironically, be solved by the Civil War. And then, of course, the Elizabethan state responded with the provision of support for the poor through the poor laws, which we'll come to. Elizabethans also tried to intervene directly when corn was scarce. Incidentally, as an aside, I have been pulled up on the use of the word corn, which I am told by some actually means maize. Well... I looked this up on the OED 
and I am relieved to say that in using it as a general word for grain, I am entirely correcting the English tradition. Apparently the first written evidence we have of its use in this way comes from a charter of 871. So that seems to be long enough to qualify as official usage then. The things you learn writing podcasts. Anyway, direct intervention. Several dearth orders were issued by the Elizabethan government. In the situation, the idea was that an investigation and survey should be carried out by the grand juries of the hundred courts, and price controls put in place, and additional corn brought in from outside. They were not terribly popular or effective, it has to be said. Locals complained that they caused a panic and a rush on hoarding which put the price up still further beyond the capability of the poor to buy, even when extra corn was brought in. So we all know the drill, of course, since with the onset of Covid, we saw people rush immediately to the products most essential for survival in the 21st century, namely soft quilted toilet paper. The supermarket shelves were swept clean to make sure that whatever the disease threw at us, at least the nation's bottoms would remain in good order. Dearth was also affected by the lack of understanding of the basic economics going on in such situations. The law of supply and demand was only vaguely understood, and years of dearth were seen as the operation of personal malfeasance, so evil cornmongers out to make a few extra quid by exploiting the misery of the poor by hoarding it and then releasing it when the price went up, or that dearth was a sign of God's displeasure and retribution, and what could a dearth order do about that? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Elizabethan England, of course, had a more general problem to deal with. Levels of poverty that increased as the century went on for the reasons described. And in the end, they arrived at an approach unique throughout Europe. I speak, ladies and gentlemen, of the Elizabethan Poor Laws. The Poor Laws, I guess, very probably have a bad reputation if you've heard of them at all. I don't know about you, but as soon as they're mentioned, my thoughts fly to Dickens, the workhouse, Thomas Gradgrind. But try to put that away from you for a moment. We are 250 years earlier than that, and only one country in Europe will reach 1600 with a statutory system of state poor relief, which would, before long, cover the whole country. And that country was Elizabethan England, which is a little odd. Why did this happen first in England? After all, as I mentioned, despite the growing tide of poverty and vagrancy, there were no mass starvations as there were in some parts of Europe. In the middle years of the 16th century, England's approach to the poor was driven by the traditional separation of the poor into the deserving and undeserving poor of the medieval world. Although it was recognised that the community, rather than the family, ought to support its poorer members, that support should be targeted at the deserving poor, those unable to work 
for various reasons. Illness, age, disablement, that sort of thing. Retribution and punishment, not goodies and buns, were to be visited on the undeserving poor, anyone who was physically able to work but wasn't doing so. To the medieval mind, the reasons they weren't working was a moral issue. They were idle. Once again, sin and moral judgments were common. Vagabonds were branded with a V for vagabond or an R for rogue, which is quite impressive for a period so dramatically idiosyncratic as far as spelling is concerned. Maybe it should have been W for rogue. However, population growth began to work a change in attitude. I mean, don't get me wrong, the sturdy beggar was still a despised and feared figure, but with the rise of population it began to be realised that there was a third category. Those people they described as poor, able, labouring folk. Or those identified in 1536 as those which endeavour themselves with all their will and labour to get their living with their hands, and yet cannot fully help themselves of their chargeable household and multitude of children. The grudging acceptance of this fact can be seen in one of the first poor law acts put in place by that social justice warrior Thomas Cromwell in 1536. The act put a voluntary system of poor rates collection, ordered vagrants to be whipped and sent back to their parish, but also ordered work to be provided for the able poor of the parish. Now, the reason for this change in attitude was once argued to be Protestantism, but the theory became discredited because the change was visible in Catholic countries as well. It seems more likely that one of the main intellectual changes came from Christian humanism, which dictated that Christian charity demanded an obligation of the rich towards the poor, but that that action should be carried out by public authority. And the aim of that action should be reform, moral reform, not simply the saving of lives. Once again, sin gets everywhere, into all the cracks and crevices of early modern Europe. In fact, I would contend that wherever there is a crack or a crevice, there you will find sin. But that's for another podcast, far, far away maybe. Anyway, moving away from crevices, Thomas Starkey fussed in the 1530s that the multitude of beggars here in our country showeth much poverty and also much idleness and ill policy. Another source of inspiration for change was the Commonwealth thinking that was so evident in Edmund Dudley's Tree of Commonwealth in the sermons of Bishop Latimer and the commotion time. Society was like a body, and the head, belly, hands and feet were all mutually interdependent, and the health of one depended on the health of all. Nonetheless, whereas Protestantism was not necessarily the source, it did increase the pressure for new thinking, because some of the infrastructure for poor relief in the monasteries had been disbanded. One response to this was the creation of public hospitals in London on the model of the approach in Germany and the Low Countries and in French cities to provide hospitals to support the poor. London therefore developed St Bart's and St Thomas's for the diseased and disabled, Christ's Hospital for foundlings and Bridewell for idle rogues. In the end, 
England took a different approach rather than this centralising one, but it's a reminder that in poor relief, England was as, with everything, part of European trends. It's also clear, though, that the poor laws built on existing experience and that local initiatives were already being tried out before the edifice of Elizabethan legislation was constructed. So a number of cities, for example, levied poor rates already. So Norwich, York, Exeter, Colchester, Ipswich and Worcester all did so by 1560, and more started schemes later. Meanwhile, collections for the poor were increasingly common in rural parishes recorded in the accounts by church wardens. So the poor laws didn't appear from nowhere. Furthermore, the tradition of private giving or charitable donations given outside statutory requirements very much continued. Large and increasing sums were being given by testators, for example, from 1540 to establish almshouses and doles, and this carries on over the following centuries. After Cromwell's Law of 1536, things rather stalled for a while. Cromwell's Act itself lapsed. A new law appeared in 1547, which imposed slavery on vagabonds, but that was repealed after just two years. But in 1552, the process started up again, with an act that decreed that surveys of the poor were to be taken in every parish. And in 1563, a new act hinted at the idea of compulsory rather than voluntary contributions. So parishioners who did not contribute were required to explain why before a magistrate. Then in 1572, JPs were required to take surveys of the poor and appoint collectors and overseers of the poor. It had provision for the punishment of vagrants and to providing work for them. The missing link here was the mechanism for making the poor laws enforceable and this was completed in the 1598 Act for the Relief of the Poor. The responsibility for raising rates, relieving the impotent, setting the able-bodied to work and apprenticing poor children was given to the church wardens and the overseer of the poor in each parish. Justices of the peace were to provide a supervisory role. In further legislation to do with vagabonds, the able vagrant was to be whipped and returned to their parish, unless they had a certificate, which led to a roaring trade in the forgery of certificates, of course. It was clarified that idle and disorderly persons could be incarcerated in houses of correction without recourse to the law. Now there are various opinions about the effectiveness of the poor laws. John Guy rather washbishly describes them as overrated. And it's true that the poor laws take a while to be fully implemented across all of England. By 1600, most of the towns seem to have poor rates in operation, but only a small minority of rural parishes. After 1601, increasingly pressure came from the centre. Over the next 40 years, the poor rate became familiar. By 1696, they were pretty much universal. A survey in that year identified that £400,000 was being raised and spent through the poor rates annually, which is a substantial amount of cash. The only thing I can relate that to are the estimates that the spending of monasteries at the dissolution on poor relief was between nine and £15,000, so very much smaller. Obviously, 
Even £400,000 was not enough to feed all of the poor. It's been estimated that it could support about 5% of the population. But it's still a remarkable total. Within 100 years, that total will have reached 1.5 million, but that's for another day. So, the 1598 Act for the Poor made a real difference because now the assized judges who visited quarterly were required to review the operation of the poor law with the local justices of the peace, who in turn took parish constables to task if required. So this mechanism gave a way to ensure implementation of the poor laws. Some parts of the legislation connected with the poor were less successful than other bits. So, most alien to us these days is the treatment of vagrants, legislation involving the detention and whipping of vagrants to be returned to their home parish, and which left English villages and towns littered with pillories, stocks and whipping posts, at which we can gawp in horror before getting ourselves a kebab and nipping into Primark. One problem was that it was not often very clear to which parish vagrants should be returned. Alternatively, although there might indeed be rogues and villains in the mix, yet many more were just very obviously economic migrants, for which the punishment seemed inappropriate. In most cases, parish constables decided against punishing them for their vagrancy and only did so where the vagrants committed some crime. The rest were given a bit of grub and a coin and escorted to the parish boundaries to carry on their way. That's not to say, by the way, that all this whipping was not a genuine part of Elizabethan society. It was, and particularly at certain times of social crises. So there were onslaughts of whipping, for example, in 1572 and 1597. Even less effective was the idea of creating work for the labouring poor, Although simple things like providing a spinning wheel or a distaff could be effective, most larger schemes led to financial chaos and failure, and overseers of the poor therefore took the easy way out normally and just provided a dole rather than trying something more complicated. Church wardens' accounts show that there were many ways in which the poor rates were implemented. It might be used to provide children with apprenticeships in the hope of avoiding future expenditure, or providing benefits in kind, shoes, shirts, lodging, that sort of thing. Bread or fuel were also common bequests. But the most common form was the cash dole, given in two ways. There might be a weekly dole, agreed yearly, or a dole for shorter periods when someone was ill or unemployed. The regular type of payment tended to go to the impotent, as it were, the old, for example, while the casual, short-term dole more often went to able-bodied men. In times of crisis, like the 1590s, for example, the church warden's records often show the casual payments overtaking the regular pension-type payments for a short period, showing how each parish responded to short-term crises, such as the harvest failures of the 1590s. Implementation of the poor law was very much a local affair carried out by local officers. Though overseers, however conscientious, still had to appear before their local magistrates to justify their decisions. But nonetheless, the system had within it bags and bags of discretion. And as one commentator noted, another word for discretion might be arbitrary.
and from the point of view of the poor, it's quite clear that most people hated being thrown on the parish, as it was put. Self-help and support was always preferred, finding a way to make shift and mend and make it through the hard times independently. Because the poor law support came at a cost for those required to ask for help. Since help was discretionary, the poor law reinforced and embedded habits and conventions of deference and obedience. The stories that sometimes emerge from the record give a glimpse of the strategies and struggle the poor employed to keep body and soul together and avoid the dole. Goods borrowed, rent foregone, faggots gathered, food cadged. I am now going to quote poetry at you now, darling, but not the language of love. This is from a different time, sure enough, from a shedcast I did on the 18th century peasant poet John Clare on whose memorial, incidentally, I frequently vomited from car sickness when I was a nipper on our way to family holidays on the Norfolk coast. Possibly that's a detail you could have done without, but it created a bond between John Clare and me. Anyway, John Clare's dad was forced to go to the parish overseer to ask for help. In the poem The Overseer, Clare's resentment finds expression. Here's a short extract. Art thou a man, thou tyrant, O distress? Art thou a rogue that beggars them of all? They sink in sorrow as a race of slaves. The kindred bond which first our fathers gave proves man thy brother still, and not thy slave. Nonetheless, that local discretion allowed parishes to respond to local circumstances. There are examples of rates and spending doubling or tripling to respond to specific crises. Nor were the poor without their own agency in this. There are plenty of examples where the claimant plays off the justice of the peace against the local overseer and ends up getting their own way over the overseer's initial reluctance to give them a dole. Attitudes were changed by the poor law too towards support. So, it was quickly assumed by all in the system, magistrates, overseers, parishioners and the poor themselves, that the poor were entitled to relief if they required it. Effectively, the state had moved from the idea of dealing with death by providing direct grants of corn or price controls to a system of transfer payments to support those in need and it was utterly typical of the Elizabethan state that this mechanism was provided at a local level by the parish. Fair enough, the discretion of parish officers cut both ways. Support came at the cost of deference. But the parish became not just a unit of community or administration but also a welfare republic. The ability of the parish to respond and the development of what was also a tool of social control by the parish elites, might go far as anything else to explain why riot and rebellion became more localised in Elizabethan England and less of an existential threat to the state. It also meant that while we all spend an inordinate amount of time talking about kings and queens and wars and religion and all these big things, in fact, in Steve Hindle's phrase, for most people... Most of the time, the most significant politics were the politics of the parish. 
Now, I need to be careful of John Guy's waspishness. The Elizabethan poor laws took a while to become general. They were never the only form of relief. Private relief will continue forever. And despite its presence, periods like the 1590s were still thoroughly stressful, socially speaking. But they are a significant part of the reason why England slipped the shadow of famine, as one historian wrote, so relatively early, while Scotland and France suffered subsistence crises as late as 1698 in Scotland and 1740 in France. The Elizabethan Poor Laws were the first national programme of poor relief in Europe, and their success is partly reflected in their longevity, lasting essentially unchanged until the new Poor Laws in 1834. Now then, we'll stick to the theme of social crisis and how the Elizabethan state copes with it all next week, when we'll talk more about crime. So, that should be fun then. Good luck then everyone, and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm. Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.